Chapter Eleven of the Gold Hunters by J. D. Borthwick. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Sue Anderson. Chapter Eleven On the Trail. In this part of the country, the pine trees are of an immense size and of every variety. The most graceful is what is called a sugar pine. It is perfectly straight and cylindrical, with a comparatively smooth bark and till about four-fifths of its height from the ground without a branch or even a twig the branches then spread straight out from the stem drooping a good deal at the extremities from the weight of the immense cones which they bear these are about a foot and a half long and under each leaf is a seed the size of a cherry stone which has a taste even sweeter than that of a filbert the Indians are very fond of them, and make the squaws gather them for winter food. A peculiarity of the pine trees in California is that the bark, from within eight or ten feet of the ground up to where the branches commence, is completely riddled with holes, such as might be made with musket balls. They are, however, the work of the woodpeckers, who, like the Indians, are largely interested in the acorn crop. They are constantly making these holes, in each of which they stow away an acorn, leaving it as tightly wedged in as though it were driven in with a sledgehammer. There were several quartz veins in the neighborhood of Nevada, some of which were very rich, and yielded a large amount of gold, but, generally speaking, they were so unscientifically and unprofitably worked that they turned out complete failures. Quartz mining is a scientific operation, of which many of those who undertake to work the veins had no knowledge whatever, nor had they sufficient capital to carry on such a business. The cost of erecting crushing mills and of getting the necessary iron castings from San Francisco was very great. A vast deal of labor had to be gone through in opening the mine before any returns could be received and moreover the method then adopted of crushing the quartz and extracting the gold was so defective that not more than one half of it was saved there is a variety of diggings here but the richest are deep diggings in the hills above the town and are worked by means of shafts or coyote holes as they are called in order to reach the gold-bearing dirt these shafts have to be sunk to the depth of nearly a hundred feet, which requires the labor of at least two men for a month or six weeks, and when they have got down to the bottom, perhaps they may find nothing to repay them for their perseverance. The miners always calculate their own labor at five dollars a day for every day they work, that being the usual wages for a hired labor and if a man after working for a month in sinking a hole finds no payment at the bottom of it he sets himself down as a loser of a hundred and fifty dollars they make up heavy bills of losses against themselves in this way but still there are plenty of men who prefer devoting themselves to this speculative style of digging in hopes of eventually striking a rich lead to working steadily at surface diggings which would yield them day by day sure though moderate pay
but mining of any description is more or less uncertain and any man hiring out as it is termed steadily throughout the year and pocketing his five dollars a day would find at the end of the year that he had done as well perhaps as the average of miners working on their own hook who spend a considerable portion of their time in prospecting and frequently in order to work a claim which may afford them a month's actual washing have to spend as long a time in stripping off top dirt digging ditches or performing other necessary labor to get their claim into working order so that the daily amount of gold which a man may happen to be taking out is not to be taken in itself as the measure of his prosperity he may take a large sum out of a claim but may also have spent as much upon it before he began to wash and half the days of the year he may get no gold at all there were plenty of men who after two years hard work were not a bit better off than when they commenced having lost in working one claim what they had made in another and having frittered away their time in prospecting and wandering about the country from one place to another always imagining that there were better diggings to be found than those they were in at the time under any circumstances when a man can make as much or perhaps more by working for himself he has greater pleasure in doing so than in working for others and among men engaged in such an exciting pursuit as gold hunting constantly stimulated by the success of some one of their neighbors it was only natural that they should be loath to relinquish their chance of a prize in the lottery by hiring themselves out for an amount of daily wages which was no more than any one if he worked steadily could make for himself those who did hire out were of two classes cold-blooded philosophers who calculated the chances and stuck to their theory unmoved by the temptations around them and men who had not sufficient inventive energy to direct their own labor and render it profitable the average amount of gold taken out daily at that time by men who really did work was i should think not less than eight dollars but the average daily yield of the mines to the actual population was probably not more than three or four dollars per head owing to the great number of loafers who did not work more than perhaps one day in the week and spent the rest of their time in bar rooms playing cards and drinking whiskey they led a listless life of mild dissipation for they never had money enough to get very drunk they were always in debt for their board and their whiskey at the boarding-house where they lived and when hard pressed to pay up they would hire out for a day or two to make enough for their immediate wants and then return to loaf away their existence in a bar-room as long as the boarding-house keeper thought it advisable to give them credit i never in any part of the mines was in a store or boarding-house that was not haunted by some men of this sort other men with more energy in their dissipation and old sailors especially would have periodical bursts more intense but of shorter duration 
After mining steadily for a month or two, and saving their money, they would set to work to get rid of it as fast as possible. An old sailor went about it most systematically, for the reason, as I supposed, that when going to have a spree, he imagined himself to have come ashore off a voyage, he generally commenced by going to a Jew's slop-shop, where he rigged himself out in a new suit of clothes. He would then go the round of all the bar-rooms in the place, and insist on every one he found there drinking with him, informing them at the same time, though it was quite unnecessary, for the fact was very evident, that he was on the spree. Of course, he soon made himself drunk, but before being very far gone, he would lose the greater part of his money to the gamblers. Cursing his bad luck, he would then console himself with a rapid succession of drinks, pick a quarrel with someone who was not interfering with him, get a licking, and be ultimately rolled into a corner to enjoy the more passive phase of his debauch. On waking in the morning, he would not give himself time to get sober, but would go at it again and keep at it for a week most affectionately and confidentially drunk in the forenoon fighting drunk in the afternoon and dead drunk at night the next week he would get gradually sober and recovering his senses would return to his work without a cent in his pocket but quite contented and happy with his mind relieved at having had what he considered a good spree four or five hundred dollars was by no means an unusual sum for such a man to spend on an occasion of this sort even without losing much at the gaming table the greater part of it went to the barkeepers for drinks for the height of his enjoyment was every few minutes to ask half a dozen men to drink with him the amount of money thus spent at the bars in the mines must have been enormous. The system of drinks was carried still further than in San Francisco, and there were numbers of men of this description who were fortunate in their diggings and became possessed of an amount of gold of which they could not realize the value. They only knew the difference between having money and having none. A hundred dollars was to them as good as a thousand and a thousand was in their ideas about the same as a hundred it did not matter how much they had saved when the time came for them to reward themselves with a spree after a month or so of hard work they made a clean sweep of everything and spent their last dollar as readily as the first i did not remain in nevada being anxious to get down to the Yuba before the rainy season should set in and put a stop to mining operations on the river. Foster's Bar, about thirty miles off, was the nearest point on the Yuba, and for this place I started. I was joined on leaving the town by a German, carrying his gun and powder horn. He was a hunter by profession, as he informed me, having followed that business for more than a year finding ready sale for his game in nevada the principal kinds of game in the mountains are deer quail hares rabbits and squirrels the quails which are very abundant are beautiful birds 
about the size of a pigeon, with a top-knot on their head. They are always in coveys, and rise with a whirr like partridges. My hunting companion was at present going after deer, and intending to stop out till he killed one, he carried his blanket and a couple of days' provisions. I arrived about noon at a very pretty place called Hunt's Ranch. It was a large log house with several well-cultivated fields around it in which a number of men were at work. At dinner here there was the most extensive set out of vegetables I ever saw in the country, consisting of green peas, French beans, cauliflower, tomatoes, onions, cucumbers, pumpkins, squash, and watermelons. It was a long time since I had seen such a display, and not knowing when I might have another opportunity, I pitched into them right and left. I was lighting my pipe in the bar-room after dinner, when a man walked in whom I recognized at once as one of my fellow passengers from New York to Chagres. I was very glad to see him, as he was one of the most favorable specimens of that crowd, and, according to the custom of the country, we immediately ratified our renewed acquaintance in a brandy cocktail. He was returning to his diggings about ten miles off, and our roads being the same, we set off together. He gave me an account of his doings since he had been in the mines, from which he did not seem to have had much luck on his side, for most of the money he had made he had lost in buying claims that turned out valueless. He had owned a share in a company which was working a claim on the Yuba, but had sold it for a mere trifle before it was ascertained whether the claim was rich or not, and it was now yielding $150 a day to the man. We crossed the middle Yuba, a small stream at Emery's Bridge, where my friend left me and I went on alone, having six or seven miles to go to reach my resting place for the night. I was now in a region of country so mountainous as to be perfectly impassable for wheeled vehicles. All supplies were brought to the various trading posts from Marysville on trains of pack mules. Packing, as it is called, is a large business. A packer has in his train from thirty to fifty mules, and four or five Mexicans to tend them, mule driving, or packing, being one of the few occupations to which Mexicans devote themselves. And at this they certainly do excel. Though generally a lazy, indolent people, it is astonishing what activity and energy they display in an employment which suits their fancy. They drive the mules about twenty-five miles a day, and in camping for the night they have to select a place where there is water, and where there is also some sort of picking for the mules, which in the dry season, when every blade of vegetation is burned up, is rather hard to find. I came across a train of about forty mules under charge of four or five Mexicans, just as they were about to unpack and make their camp. The spot they chose was a little grassy hollow in the middle of the woods, near which flowed a small stream of beautifully clear water. It was evidently a favorite camping ground, 
from the numbers of signs of old fires the mules seemed to know it too for they all stopped and commenced picking the grass the mexicans who were riding tough little california horses immediately dismounted and began to unpack working with such vigor that one might have thought they were doing it for a wager two men unpack a mule together they first throw over his head a broad leathern belt which hangs over his eyes to blind him and keep him quiet then one man standing on each side they cast off the numerous hide ropes with which the cargo is secured and when all is cast loose each man removes his half of the cargo and places it on the ground another mule is then led up to the same spot and unpacked in like manner the cargo being all ranged along the ground in a row and presenting a very miscellaneous assortment of sacks of flour barrels of pork or brandy bags of sugar boxes of tobacco and all sorts of groceries and other articles when all the cargoes have been unpacked they then take off the aparejos or large mexican pack saddles examining the back of each mule to see if it is galled the pack saddles are all set down in a row parallel with the cargo the girth and saddle cloth of each being neatly folded and laid on the top of it the place where the mules have been unpacked between the saddles and the cargo is covered with quantities of rawhide ropes and other lashings which are all coiled up and stowed away in a heap by themselves every mule as his saddle is taken off refreshes himself by rolling about in the dust and when all are unsaddled the bell horse is led away to water the mules all follow him and are left to their own devices till morning the bell horse of a train of mules is a very curious institution he is generally an old white horse with a small bell hung round his neck he carries no cargo but leads the van in tow of a mexican the mules will follow him through thick and thin but without him they will not move a step in the morning the mules are hunted up and driven into camp when they are tied together in a row behind their pack saddles and brought round one by one to be saddled and packed to pack a mule well considerable art is necessary his load must be so divided that there is equal weight on each side else the mule works at great disadvantage if his load is not nicely balanced and tightly secured he cannot so well pick his way along the steep mountain trails and as not unfrequently happens topples over and rolls down to some place from which no mule returns end of chapter eleven